Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It's time for Sorallo Sports Talk with Joe Sorallo. episode 30 of the big show and i can't wait for this one i've got a monologue all over march madness as we gear up for the final four two one seeds a two and in 11 i absolutely love it we'll get to opening day that's right first pitch in the 2021 mlb season just hours away and in my final word we'll get to why the 17 game nfl regular season is awful for football But how about this NCAA tournament? The Gonzaga Bulldogs are one of the most special college basketball teams I have ever seen. Of course, look, everyone knows the storyline. Everyone knows the narrative. Trying to be the first unbeaten team start to finish since Bob Knight's Hoosiers in the 70s. I mean, we're talking about nearly 50 years, what, 45 years since that feat has happened. It would be absolutely incredible. But to me, what's more remarkable, what separates Gonzaga from teams in recent years, you know, Kentucky teams, UNLV in the 90s, Duke teams that have gone unbeaten or had one loss prior to the tournament, what separates Gonzaga is that there are no close games, right? There are no buzzer beaters. There are no lucky bounces, lucky rolls. Gonzaga is blowing away everyone. What is it, 27, 28 straight wins by double digits? The fact that they've beaten everyone in the NCAA tournament, four games, three of which are against very formidable opponents. Of course, I'm not going to count the the Norfolk State win in the opening round of 64. But since then, Oklahoma, Creighton, USC, all wins by 15 points or more. These games aren't even close. The opposing teams don't have a chance against Gonzaga. And now they have a fortunate draw against an 11 seed. Mind you, and I'll get into this UCLA team because These Bruins are absolutely incredible. Mind you, they're not your average or typical 11 seed. But who's to say Gonzaga won't beat them by 15 plus points? You know, is UCLA's stifling defense going to be able to hold the Bulldogs to 49 like they did a depleted Michigan team? You know, if UCLA scores 51 points, they're not winning this one. They're probably losing by 15, probably 20. So the Bruins are going to have to change their game around. But man, if this Gonzaga-USC game two nights ago, wasn't over at 7-0. It was over at the first media timeout, right? At 17-4. I mean, this game, the Trojans never had a chance. In fact, I think 17-4, I don't think it got closer than that 13-point margin at that point. Might might have gotten to 17-6 right after that. And then I don't think the Trojans saw single digits. I mean, that's what I was waiting for all night, was just for USC to cut it to single digits and maybe give us a ball game. But at that first media timeout, you have Isaiah Mobley, of course, one of the Trojans stars, brother of Evan Mobley, who's going to be the second pick in the NBA draft. You have him and Andy Enfield, the head coach, going at it on the sideline. I mean, the Trojans took themselves out of the game from the get, right? They were flustered. They felt pressure. Probably the first time they felt any sort of pressure like that since, what, the opening round, their first game against Drake? I mean, Drake was in it for 
about 20 minutes, right? At halftime, you had a ball game between USC and Drake. The 6-11 matchup was on upset alert. But after that, you had USC steamroll Drake in the second half. They blew away, tortured Kansas, beating them by 30-plus in the round of 32. Sweet 16, they made quick work of Oregon, derailing the Ducks. Uh, I mean, USC hadn't faced a challenge en route to their Elite Eight appearance. So it doesn't take away. I mean, what they did, they were absolutely dominant. Uh, They had a hell of a run, a really impressive run. I had USC being bounced in the round of 32. So this season's by no means a disappointment. But you can almost argue that they had it too easy before they ran into the powerhouse, the freight train. That is Mark Fuse Gonzaga team. Because USC did not seem prepared for adversity last night. You saw that early on. Uh, I mean, this is the team that was supposed to give Gonzaga a run for its money finally, right? You had the number one two-point defense in USC against the number one two-point offense in Gonzaga. And you had to figure at some point Gonzaga would start missing some shots, right? At some point, the Trojans' tough defense, I mean, two of the best post defenders in the country, in the Mobley brothers, at some point they would step up, right? Gonzaga wasn't all that impressive from three, hit just 33% of their shots from deep, seven of 21. But inside the arc, where USC's defense thrives, where they're the best in the country. Gonzaga shot 58%. I mean, the Trojans couldn't stop them. They were getting layups. They were getting baseline jumpers, elbow jumpers. Uh, I mean, USC just could not stop Gonzaga. And part of that, you have to credit Drew Timmy, right? The 6'10 sophomore. I mean, what he did going into that post and just dominating, the Mobley brothers had good games. Drew Timmy was not intimidated by either one of them, though. He went out there and he said, all right, Evan, you're going to be the number two draft pick. Okay, Isaiah, you compliment your brother. You're going to put up 19, 20 points. That's fine. This is my ball game. I mean, Jalen Suggs, who I think, you know, Cade Cunningham and Evan Mobley, of course, they're, they're the phenoms who everyone has going one and two. I think Jalen Suggs is the most NBA ready player in college right now. And he'll be a top five pick. That's nothing to sneeze at. But I think he is the most NBA ready player in college ahead of Cade Cunningham, ahead of Evan Mobley. Jalen Suggs almost had a triple-double, and that's not even the storyline. He, in a lot of people's opinion, mine included, didn't even have the best game on Gonzaga because Drew Timmy, what he did with his matchups against the Mobley brothers in the post, he took control of that game. And a lot of Jalen Suggs' eight assists went to Drew Timmy, and he was not intimidated. He was not afraid. He stuck his ass right in the gut of the Mobley brothers. He backed him down in the paint. And Drew Timmy, credit him, he had a hell of a game out there. That's the thing with Gonzaga. It doesn't have to be Jalen Suggs, right? Oklahoma State, it has to be Cade Cunningham. That's why they got bounced in the round of 32. USC, I mean, Evan Mobley has more of a supporting cast, I think, than Cunningham does in Oak State. But if Evan Mobley has an off night, which by no means he he did last night, you know, he, he still had 17 points. Offensively, he was there, but you're trading twos for twos at that point when you're already down 19. It's not really going to get you anywhere. So Evan Mobley's got more of a supporting cast, but he doesn't have the roster Gonzaga has, right? He doesn't have Cody Kispert or Ajayi in the backcourt with Suggs, right? Doesn't have Timmy playing in the post next to him, even though he's got his brother. Drew Timmy last night made work of his brother, made work of him. This Gonzaga team is absolutely special, and they never backed off. They never let USC get in this game. I mean, in the second half, both teams scored 36 points, right? You can argue, oh, the Trojans played better. They were down 19. Like I said, you can't trade twos for twos when you're down 19 at halftime because then they ended up losing by 19. It was just an embarrassing showing from USC. 
and a completely dominant showing from Gonzaga. But that's not to knock USC because that's what everyone looks like against Gonzaga. Everyone gets embarrassed. Iowa embarrassed against Gonzaga. Kansas embarrassed against Gonzaga. Virginia, the defending national champs, embarrassed against Gonzaga. The Gonzaga Bulldogs are on another level. You know, they're not a mid-major. They shouldn't be treated like a Cinderella. I know some people are sarcastically talking about them like that, you know? Just like Houston. Houston's not a Cinderella, right? These are one seeds and two seeds we're talking about. Perennial tournament teams. Houston, their resurgence has come a little more recently, but they're back. Gonzaga's been there. Gonzaga's been there for a long time. They're not your Loyola Chicago, right? They're not your St. Bonaventure. They're not your Belmont. They're Gonzaga. They're expected to be a one seed. Now, they should be in the Pac-12. For football reasons, obviously, they're not. But this is a team that does not belong in the West Coast Conference because they are a powerhouse. There's nothing magical, nothing Cinderella-like about this team. Now, if anything, there's something Cinderella-like going on with UCLA, with the team that has more Final Four appearances than anyone else in the history of college basketball, on their way now to their 19th, their first under Mick Cronin, their first since three straight from 2006 to 2008. That 08 team, by the way, led by Russ Westbrook, Kevin Love. You hear of those guys? Uh, They went on to have pretty good, I'd say, Hall of Fame-worthy NBA careers. UCLA. It just feels right to have the Bruins in the Final Four. And and the crazy thing about it is that this is not a typical Bruins team. This is not typical UCLA style, right? Winning games 51-49. to Winning a defensive battle against a 14 seed in Abilene Christian in the round of 32. I mean, holding Alabama to 65 points in regulation. An Alabama team that was averaging over 80 per game, right? This is not UCLA basketball, but it's Mick Cronin basketball. You know, Mick Cronin was the fifth choice for UCLA when they fired Steve Alford. I mean, everyone remembers their first choice. They were trying to lure John Calipari away from Kentucky. And Calipari, just like choices... Two, three, and four on the Bruins list. He used that leverage to sign a lifetime contract with the Kentucky Wildcats. Mick Cronin, you had to go down to number five on the Bruins pecking order to finally be like, all right, I guess we'll we'll take that guy over at Cincinnati. You know, as Cronin describes himself, the little 5'3 Irishman coaching uh, the Bearcats. Well, he's in Hollywood now, and he's got the national stage. He's in the final four, and it's absolutely amazing. If you look at what Mick Cronin did when he was with Cincinnati, right? They were a lock. They were a guarantee to make the tournament practically every year. But he had the reputation for being a quick out once he got there. I believe in his entire time in Cincinnati, only one Sweet 16 appearance. A couple round of 32s, but the the Bearcats were known for never making it out of the first weekend. They'd always get there, but... Whether they won in the round of 64 or not, that first weekend was going to be their limit in all but one season under Mick Cronin. Well, in his first postseason appearance with UCLA, remember last year the Bruins were going to make the tournament. They were setting themselves up for an at-large bid. They had the two seed in the Pac-12 after a really slow start. Lost to Hofstra, lost to Cal State Fullerton. All of a sudden they bought in and they finished 19-12, and right? UCLA was going to the tournament last year before COVID canceled the postseason. So now in his first opportunity to coach in a postseason for the Bruins, he's going to the Final Four. And it's because his players bought in, right? You hear him talking about it in the, post-game, uh, in the post-game press conference last night, two nights ago on TBS. It's because his team bought in. They're playing defense. 
which is something that in the Pac-12 is not all that common, and they're locking opponents down. They don't care who you are. They don't care if you're 14-seed Abilene Christian or if you're 2-seed Alabama or 1-seed Michigan. They're locking opponents down. I mean, this team does not have a lot of offense, right? Two nights ago, you had Johnny Juzang bang out 28 points out of their 51. More than half of his team's scoring. Then you had Tiger Campbell with 11, no one else in double digits. But defensively, they limited the Wolverines to just one double-digit score. Hunter Dickinson had 11 points, that was it. Franz Wagner, worst game of his career, right? I mean, you look at two games he's had this season, the two-point performance against Illinois, March 2nd, where Michigan lost by 23, and then his four-point performance last night, one of 10 from the field, hit, hit a couple free throws, Missed a buzzer beater, had a wide open look, top of the arc, straight on three-pointer for the win, down two, and he airballed it. And he airballed it by about four feet. It wasn't even close. He had the yips. He had no confidence in that game. I mean, Franz Wagner, people are saying he's a lottery pick. I'm sorry. I haven't seen anything in this tournament, this March, that tells me that Franz Wagner's a lot a lottery pick. I just I don't love his game. To me, he's a soft big guy who tries to play like a guard. And I just don't think that that'll translate to the NBA. I think that he has more raw talent than his brother Mo, who of course is in the league right now. But I think that Mo is a better NBA player than friends on toughness. I mean, look, and he's just a sophomore. That's not to say that that can't change. I think another year or two under Jawan Howard would actually serve him wonders. But I think leaving college right now to go to the NBA even if you're going to be a lottery pick this year, why not stay another year, try to win a natty, and then maybe be a top 10 or a top five pick. But he needs to get tougher before going to the NBA because UCLA bodied him. UCLA handled him a couple nights ago in that game. I mean, Johnny Juzang was lights out. I already said 28 of his team's 51. In the first half, he had 18 of their 27 points. They only hit three field goals without him. He made eight of their 11 shots from the floor. In fact, UCLA hit two of those other three shots in the final three minutes of the first half. So for the first 17 minutes of basketball, the Bruins not named Johnny Juzang were one of 15 from the floor. It was literally a one-man show on offense, but luckily for him, luckily for the Bruins fans, it was a five-man show on defense, and that's how they won the game. That's how they've been winning games. It's been incredible. You know, I didn't think this team was going to beat Michigan State in the first four. And then when they did, I said, all right, they'll pick, they'll beat BYU because I had no faith in Drake beating USC. And seemingly every year, a first four team wins at least one of the two first four 11 seeds wins the round of 64 matchup. So I said, all right, UCLA is the better bet to win. But I don't know. I kind of doubted that pick. I did it because history told me to do it. I didn't really believe in the Bruins, took them to beat BYU and then figured, all right, there'll be a quick out to Texas. Well, Texas goes down to a 14 seed. UCLA makes quick work of BYU. They make easy work of Abilene Christian. All of a sudden, I'm like, there's no way this team can beat Alabama. And here they are. They hold Alabama's offense to 65 points in regulation. They beat them in overtime. They beat Michigan. And I mean, UCLA has been grinding out games, right? The BYU and Abilene Christian games were easy, but overtime against the Spartans, overtime against Alabama, a two-point hard-fought 40-minute full performance that went into their win against Michigan. I I mean, it hasn't been easy, but the Bruins are outlasting their opponents. And that's what it's all about. Now, will they be able to outlast Gonzaga 
I want to root for them. I want to say I hope so. I can't say I think so. This Gonzaga team is on another level. And frankly, no matter who they play, Baylor, Houston, you know, again, I, I hope it's Houston. I think it'll be Baylor. I, I don't see anyone giving Gonzaga much of a game. In fact, I'm going to say that Gonzaga beats UCLA by more than eight. That if they play Houston in Monday night's final, it'll be a double-digit win. And if they play Baylor, they'll beat them by more than seven. So that, that's where I'll set the line for Gonzaga. UCLA, I know right now it's 14 and a half. I would set it at seven and a half for the UCLA game just because the Bruins on the off chance that their defense can stifle Gonzaga a little bit. Maybe they can hang around. Plus, they have to play better offensively than they did against Michigan. Houston, I think Gonzaga wins by double digits. And then Baylor, I would set the line at Gonzaga minus six and a half. Because that's how dominant this team is. I don't think the odds makers can even set a line within five points. Even in the national championship game against, what was Baylor? The number two overall seed? I just don't think you can do it. That's how dominant, that's how special Mark Few's Gonzaga team is. You know, I, I never root for them. I always try to say, oh, the West Coast schedule is too weak. It's too light. They can't do it in March. Gonzaga is going to win a national championship. When I come back, all over, opening day in the MLB, again, just hours away from the first pitch in baseball. I can't wait. So stick with me, Joe Serralo, right here on Serralo Sports Talk. Don't even think about leaving. You're locked into the best sports talk out there. Here's Joe. Back here on Serralo Sports Talk with me, Joe Serralo, and we've arrived. Opening day for all 30 teams in Major League Baseball just hours away. I am so excited. I've been waiting all winter for this. I mean, especially as a Met fan, right? Nothing to hide there. Everyone who knows me knows I am a diehard New York Mets fan. I haven't been able to wait for this season to begin since the Mets acquired Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco. I mean, I cannot wait to see what goes down in Flushing Queens this season. The only thing that could have made my anticipation for this 2021 baseball season, any higher would have been a universal DH. Then I would have been like, fire me up, I'm ready to go. But even as it is, I, I mean, their, their lineup, one through eight, is an all-star team. It's incredible. The only concern I have, the only reason that I want everyone to slow their roll a bit on my New York Mets, who I will probably pick to win the division, is pitching. And I know that the Mets, on paper when healthy, have most say a top three, I say the best rotation in baseball. But the fact of the matter is, they're missing 40% of their intended starting rotation on opening day. They're missing their best reliever in Seth Lugo. He probably won't be back for about two months. Noah Syndergaard should be back around June. Carlos Carrasco, hopefully sooner. Hopefully he's back in a month. But the Mets are not coming out of the gate with their best pitching. Now, the good news is Uncle Stevie came to the rescue. Steve Cohen made sure that the team went out and got plenty of depth in terms of starting pitching this offseason, right? So you've got Jake DeGrom 
as your ace. He's going to win another Cy Young. Mark it right now, third in four years. You've got Stroman, who was probably slated to be the number three. He'll be bumped up to the number two. And then after that, you've got Tawan Walker, David Peterson, and Joey Lucchese. Now, Peterson and Lucchese were not slated to be in that opening day rotation. And you even have additional depth. You've got Jordan Yamamoto, who was optioned to AAA to start the year. So the Mets have plenty of starting pitching depth. You know, eventually Carrasco will be back. Lucchese will probably go to the bullpen or maybe even AAA. Eventually, Syndergaard will be back. Then you'll have a decision to make with either David Peterson or Taiwan Walker. Everything will be fine. I'm not worried about where the Mets are going to finish. I'm not worried about what Syndergaard will look like when he comes back because all reports right now are that he's at 70% and pumping 97 You know, Carlos Carrasco is a seasoned guy. He's a successful vet. I'm not worried about him. Seth Lugo, when he gets back, I'm sure will be lights out dominant. Whether you need him in a, in a long relief role, whether you need him to spot start, whether you need him to close, Seth Lugo is just the ultimate utility man in that bullpen. But to start the year, their pitching is not at full health. And every game, I, I know it's, it's a long season, 162 games for a lot of people is too many. Every game matters in that NL East because it is undoubtedly the best division in baseball. I mean, talk about a dogfight. You know, everyone's anointing the Mets champs of the NL East, which look, I'll, like I said, I'll probably pick them to win the division, but that might be the fan in me because the Atlanta Braves have done it three straight years, right? The Atlanta Braves have Ronald Acuna, a perennial MVP candidate in the National League. The Washington Nationals, everyone seems to forget about the Washington Nationals. You know, the postseason predictions in the National League are pretty uniform across the board. It's Mets, Braves, in the Central, it's the St. Louis Cardinals, and in the West, it's the Dodgers and Padres. You know, that seems to be what everyone's going for in terms of the NL playoff picture. Not much variation there. I saw one person pick the Brewers in the Central. I don't see the Brewers doing it. I don't see the Cubs doing it. I know they've got Brizzo, of course, Chris Bryan and Anthony Rizzo. They've got Javi Baez. I just don't see the Cubs having the pitching. You know, last year they struggled mightily. Yeah, they can score four or five runs a game on average, but what are they going to give up, six, seven? You know, I just don't see the Cubs as a legit team anymore. I think Bryant and Rizzo are going to be traded by the deadline. Baez maybe as well. I I think the Cubs are totally going to dismantle that roster, which is a shame because David Ross is a great guy. I think he's a great manager. He just doesn't have the tools around him. The pitching kind of collapsed as 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 soon as he got to Wrigleyville. So I think the playoff picture, everyone's taking it you know, pretty uniformly, those five teams I just mentioned, I'm going to switch it up a little when I get to my postseason predictions. But, you know, you can't, can't disregard the Braves, three straight NL East crowns. You can't disregard the Washington Nationals. By the way, the Philadelphia Phillies still have Bryce Harper and JT Real Muto last I checked. And also last I checked, the Miami Marlins are coming off, what, a second place finish in the NL East last year, a playoff appearance. Now, look, I know it was a shortened season with COVID, 60 games. It was weird. I get it. Marlins probably are going to go back to their last place selves this season. They'll probably revert to that. But they did make the playoffs last year. First time since 2003. That shouldn't be overlooked. The NL East, far and away the best division in baseball. You've got, what, three MVP candidates? Four MVP candidates in that division? Acuna, Soto, Francisco Lindor, Bryce Harper. I would say Pete Alonso is also an MVP candidate, but the fact of the matter is, if the Mets do run away with that division and win 100 games and Francisco Lindor is their best player, then, you know, Alonso could hit 40, 50 home runs. But if Lindor has an MVP caliber season, he's going to get the votes because he's the new guy, right? They're going to look at that and be like, oh, look, Lindor came to the Mets. 
Last year, they were awful. What were they, 26 and 34, missed the playoffs? Lindor comes to town. They win 100 games, win the division. He'll get the votes. But, you know, they really do have two MVP candidates, Justin Queens and a Cy Young candidate who maybe could be an MVP candidate too, depending on how lights out he is. I mean, the NL East is just loaded with talent. If you made an all-star team from every division in baseball, just took the best players from the five teams in each division, the NL East team is, I mean, you, you would have MVP candidates coming off the bench. That's how solid that team is. It's unreal. So nothing's going to come easy for the Mets. I mean, Ryan Zimmerman in DC, he, by the way, is slated to be a backup because there is no universal DH. He just hit 480 this spring with six home runs and 15 RBI. And he'll be a backup because they just acquired Josh Bell to play first base in DC, who also had six home runs, 15 RBI this spring while hitting 380. You know what I mean? Juan Soto had a terrible spring. He had a buck 82, had no homers, but come on, it's Juan Soto. He's incredible. And oh, by the way, he's what, 21, 22? You know, they still have Trey Turner. I'm telling you, with that pitching as well, Scherzer, Corbin, Strasburg, the Washington Nationals, they bring in John Lester now, who's seven wins shy of 200. I mean, they are a scary team. And the Mets open up there tonight. I can't wait. Jacob DeGrom, Max Scherzer, opening night. Nothing, nothing can get the hairs on the back of your neck to stand up like that pitching matchup on primetime ESPN opening night for baseball. It's going to be a fun season. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to start with the American League. The Yankees are running away with that division, right? The Tampa Bay Rays are not going to be a force. They're going to go from American League pennant from World Series appearance to not even sniffing the playoffs this year. Tampa could legitimately be a fourth place team. And it's because of pitching. They lost crucial integral members of their bullpen. They lost their best pitcher in Blake Snell. Look, Tyler Glass now is a stud and he could really compete for the Cy Young in the American League this season, but they don't have enough. Chris Archer, maybe he goes there, experiences a resurgence. Chris Archer has had one of the more disappointing MLB careers I can remember. I mean, he was supposed to be all that, you know? He had the swag, he had the stuff. He was supposed to be a Cy Young candidate. Chris Archer has stunk, frankly. So I don't know how much of an impact he'll make in Tampa Bay. They lost Aaron Loop. He was a great member of that bullpen. He's on the Mets, of course, now. You know, I just, I don't trust Tampa this year. Kevin Cash lost all my respect when he pulled Blake Snell early in game six. And I think that the Tampa Bay Rays are going to regret that for a long time because I don't think they'll be back for a long time. Not until that pitching improves. They can do it with makeshift lineups, but I do not trust their pitching. I think the Yankees run away with that division. I think the White Sox are clearly the best team in the Central. Even if they're fighting the injury bug a bit, I think Chicago has the best pitching in that division. You're going to notice a trend and, and a theme here. You know, I think pitching, as long as guys stay healthy, that's the key. So I'm going to go Yankees, White Sox, and then Astros to bounce back, win the division, even without Verlander. They love Christian Javier. I love Christian Javier. I think Jose Urquidy has incredible stuff. Lance McCullers now with the extension is going to come out and ball. He's a guy who's battled the injury bug. Now that he's healthy, I have a ton of faith in Lance McCullers and Zach Greinke, of course, as their ace. I think the Astros, even losing George Springer, have the best combination of pitching and hitting in the American League, maybe just second to the Yankees. And I think Houston's going to reclaim their AL West title. The wild card is tricky. Wild card teams in the American League. I mean, you're looking at whereas, whereas in the National League, you've got maybe six or seven teams fighting for the five spots. In the American League, you have 10 legitimate teams that can make the playoffs. And it's going to be tough. You know, the Angels have a good looking lineup and Shohei Otani is throwing the ball incredibly, hitting the ball wildly good this spring as well. I mean, Otani 
could be an MVP candidate this year and the Angels could finally make the playoffs again. What would it be? Mike Trout's second playoff appearance? I mean, that's an absolute shame. But this could be the year for the Angels. The Kansas City Royals have a sneaky, good, young lineup. I don't think they have the pitching. The Toronto Blue Jays are going to make the playoffs. So I'm going to, I'm going to take the Blue Jays to be the fifth and final team to make the playoffs. I think that that young core, Bichette, Biggio, Guerrero, adding Marcus Simeon, bringing in George Springer to lead the way. I think the Blue Jays, even though their pitching could be better, they're going to make the playoffs. And the four seed isn't going to be the Angels. It isn't going to be the Royals. I don't trust the Oakland Athletics this year. Out of Matt Chapman and Matt Olson, outside of those two, I don't think the A's can hit. I don't know if I can name a pitcher in their starting rotation. Outside of Sean Manea and Frankie Montes, who had the PED trouble in the past, they lose Liam Hendricks to the White Sox. I'm counting the A's and Rays out. And look, that could be dangerous because those two always seem to lurk around, but I'm counting them out and I'm going with the Minnesota Twins to be the fourth seed to host Toronto in the wildcard game. So that's my AL playoff picture. Yankees, White Sox, Astros, Twins, Blue Jays, in the National League. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go with my Mets to win the NL East. And, you know, people are concerned about the Mets with extension talks and Frankie Lindor gave them an opening day hard deadline and... Now people are really worried because the Mets traded, gave up a decent amount to get him. I'm not worried about that. You go out there, you win games, the guys will want to stay. They're worried about Conforto. He'll want to stay. They're worried about Syndergaard. If you win, they will want to stay. Look at the Dodgers. Look at the Astros minus George Springer, although the Astros haven't won in a couple of years. So Springer had more incentive to go somewhere else if he saw a better opportunity at winning, which he clearly did when he chose Toronto. You know, if you win, guys will stay. The Mets will win the division this year. The Central is going to the St. Louis Cardinals. You know, the NL Central, as strong as the NL East is, the Central's probably the weakest division. You know, Cincinnati had a chance. The Reds made the playoffs last year. They had a chance to emerge as favorites in the division this year. They let it all squander away, right? They let Trevor Bauer go. They couldn't compete with the Mets and the Dodgers in terms of money. Sonny Gray, they're looking to trade. They trade Rysel and Glacius. He's now closing for the Angels, who, as bad as their starting pitching looks, they do have a pretty formidable bullpen, which they just fortified with a couple last-minute additions as well. Steve Ciszek, one of them. Uh, But the Cincinnati Reds missed an opportunity. You know, the Cubs don't have the pitching to keep up with their lineup. I don't think the Brewers have a full, you know, they got a good bullpen. I don't like their rotation. Their lineup's good. You know, maybe Milwaukee and Chicago can challenge St. Louis, but St. Louis seems like, especially with the Nolan Arenado edition, That should be their division to run away with. And when I say run away with, I mean 87, 88 wins should be enough in that division. The West, lock it in. Dodgers for the division. Padres can give them a hard time, can give them hell. They'll be a wild card. And that leaves the fifth and final spot up for, well, everyone's saying the Atlanta Braves based on the fact that I have the Mets winning the division. I'm going to say it's those Washington Nationals that I spent a lot of time talking about before. I think the Nationals... The bullpen concerns me a bit, but hell, they added Brad Hand. He's a great, reliable lefty who the Mets wanted and the Nationals stole from him. You know, like I said, Zimmerman can hit the crap out of the ball, and he's not even a starter. That's how deep this team is. Josh Bell at first base, humongous addition. Kyle Schwarber, he's got great pop. He'll hit some important home runs. Definitely a liability in the field. We'll see how that works out. Trey Turner, Juan Soto, both guys that had really lackluster springs. These guys are ballers. You know, Trey Turner is another guy you could talk about it as an MVP candidate. But again, kind of like Pete Alonso, overshadowed by Juan Soto, the way Alonso will be overshadowed in all likelihood by Frankie Lindor. I mean, the Washington Nationals, 
are one of the more complete teams in baseball, yet they get overlooked. You know, last year, did they underperform? Absolutely. Hell, so did the Mets. Two years ago, they were awful. They were the second to worst team in baseball at the end of May. They won the World Series, right? Don't forget what these guys did. Don't forget the talent that Steven Strasburg has, that Max Scherzer has, that Patrick Corbin has. Don't forget who John Lester once was, and I believe still can be. You know, he's got 200 wins on his mind, seven wins away from that milestone. And whereas in Chicago, he was one of the aces of that rotation. He's the number four guy. He can just go out there and let it fly. There's a lot of pressure, I believe, alleviated on John Lester now that he's out of Chicago. The Washington Nationals, I believe, are going to overtake the Atlanta Braves and finish in second place and with a wild card in the NL East, leaving the Braves in third, Phillies in fourth, Marlins in fifth this season. That's my full division prediction for the NL East, my full postseason prediction, my World Series, Subway Series. I think it just makes sense. 20 years since 9-11, 21 years since the last Subway Series World Series, I think it just makes too much sense for this to be the year where Garrett Cole and Jacob deGrom both win the Cy Young and both lead their respective New York squads to the World Series. And I'm just going to leave it at that. No World Series winner, because obviously you know I would take my Mets over the Yankees. But I think we're in for a treat. I think that if the Yankees lineup stays healthy and the Mets pitching stays healthy, you're going to get a Subway Series World Series for the first time since the year 2000. Back with my final word on Sorallo Sports Talk with me, Joe Sorallo. Don't change that channel. It's time for Joe's final word here on Sorallo Sports Talk. It is time for my final word here on this week's episode of Sorallo Sports Talk. Look, you've gotten my take on March Madness. You've heard what I think about the upcoming MLB season. There's only one thing left to cover. The new 17-game regular season schedule in the NFL this season is horrible. I absolutely hate it, and I don't think I'm the only one. This is a solely beneficial to the owners move by the league. I don't think this benefits the players in any way, shape, or form. Yes, they get an additional bonus if they're on the 53-man roster for that 17th and final game. They get a bonus that's equivalent to 117th of their contract. Look, they signed that contract to play 16 regular season games. And yes, you could say, oh, they're still playing 20, right? Because preseason got cut from four to three to add this game. Starters don't play in the preseason. So they have to play an extra game. And if your take is, oh, well, they get paid to play a game for a living. Who cares? Shut up and tune out right now. Because that is the worst take. That is the ultimate, I never played a sport. I am not a knowledgeable sports fan take, right? That's the ultimate, I hate my nine to five and I resent athletes for what they do for a living take. Because that is a horrendous take. Yes, these guys play a sport, not a game. Chess is a game. These guys play a sport for a living. And in this case, in the case of football, look, do I think athletes as a whole are overpaid? Yeah, I think basketball contracts are asinine. I think basketball NBA contracts are absurd. I think baseball contracts, the fact that we're debating Francisco Lindor getting 325 versus 385 million, I think baseball contracts are nuts. Don't ever talk to me about a contract in football. 
These guys put their bodies, their livelihood at risk every single time they strap on a chin strap every single week. And they are actually probably the most underpaid of any athlete in those three major sports here in the US. I mean, hockey is, of course, the fourth major sport. Those guys are actually underpaid as well. But hockey just doesn't generate the buzz or the revenue that football generates. Football is king. In terms of sports, translating over to media, TV rights, football is king. Football drives the headlines. Football is the one sport that you can get away with talking about 365 days a year on a radio show, on a TV show, on a podcast, right? When it comes to media, the NFL is king. More than the NBA, way more than the MLB, and way, way more than the NHL. And these guys are paid the worst out of those three sports. I mean, yes, Patrick Mahomes, he signed a contract worth half a billion dollars, right? That's an exception. Quarterbacks get paid out the ass, but the guys doing the dirty work, the guys in the trenches, linebackers, D-backs, wide receivers, running backs. I mean, these are look at running backs, right? These are guys that no one wants to pay because it's such an injury-prone position. If you play four years as a running back, you're exceeding the average in the NFL. So no one wants to pay these guys. They view them as replaceable. All you have to do is blow out your knee. You could have been a 1,000, a 1,500-yard rusher in year two. Year three, you blow out your knee. You never get a chance to hit free agency. You never get a chance to sign that second contract. You know, and the amount of non-guaranteed money in the NFL is awful. I mean, mark my words, anyone who gets hurt in this 17th game is not going to be a happy camper. And it's going to happen, unfortunately. At least one, two guys around the league in this new week 18 or whatever it is, it's going to cost someone money down the line. So I'm sure all the players think that the league and the teams can keep that bonus worth one seventeenth of their contract. I'm sure some of them even think that those teams can go shove it. You know, I had a guy in the the AFC East text me yesterday saying he's pissed. He's not happy about it. You know, I've had a few retired NFL players text me and say, boy, we're happy that, you know, that we aren't playing right now, that we don't have to do this BS. All right. It is a selfish move by the owners. The players are not happy. I personally, it bothers me because A, I think of the players first and foremost ahead of the owners and B, I got a little OCD. And something about seeing a 10 and 7 record or 9 and 8, I mean, this is now the only major sport where you can't go 500, right? Hockey and basketball, 82 games. Baseball, 162 games. 17. So you can't have a 500 season. Plus, you play an uneven amount of home and away games. Half the league is going to play 9 home, 8 away. Half the league, 8 home, 9 away. I think that's incredibly unfair when scheduling. I think that if you were going to expand that the move should have been cut the preseason to two games and play 18 regular season games, which again, I think for all the reasons I stated before as to why I hate 17, I think 18 is too many, but I think that that should have been the only option if you're expanding from 16. The 17th game just throws everything off in my opinion. And it makes scheduling uneven and the players are unhappy and I just think it's an overall terrible move. You know who played 17 games a couple years ago? Emmanuel Sanders right? Why didn't the league ask Emmanuel Sanders? He went on NFL Network, he went on ESPN, Sirius XM, and he talked about how hard that season was. He played 17 games, got traded halfway through the season from Denver to San Fran. The Broncos had not yet had their bye week. The 49ers already had their bye week. Emmanuel Sanders played 17 straight weeks. Thank God the 49ers were the one seed in the NFC, right? Thank God they had a bye week in the playoffs. If they didn't, 
Emmanuel Sanders would have played 21 straight weeks. He played 17 weeks in a row, got the bye week, wildcard weekend, and then played the three most important games of his life right after that. He admitted it took a toll on him. That was a long season. He needed that offseason. You're not meant to go into combat like that 17 straight weeks in a row. I mean, look, you could say you're not meant to do it once. Special teams, uh, it's like watching, this is Sparta. Guys charging at each other full speed. Now you're adding to that? Look, it's no secret the toll that football takes on your body after you retire, physically and mentally. And I think at this point, with the science and the studies and the knowledge that we now have to add to the regular season schedule, I think is irresponsible, selfish, and a move of pure greed by the league. I absolutely hate it. I think it's terrible for for the players, for the sport as a whole. I think it's going to deter some young guys from playing football. Not the one game necessarily, but just the fact that the league is blatantly showing, in my opinion, by doing this uh, a total and absolute disregard for the players' safety, for the players' concerns. None of the players want this. And the league is saying, screw you, we're going to do it anyway. I think that is what could deter some people from playing football. It's, it's just a horrendous move. I hate it. The players hate it. The league shouldn't have done it. But just like that, this episode of Serralo Sports Talk is up. It's over. It's out of here. Another great show. No guests this week, but I'm working on a pretty good one for next week. So I'll see you guys next week right here on Serralo Sports Talk.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.